Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr. Today I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. David Gushy. Dr. David Gushy has a PhD from Union Theological Seminary in New York. He's the Distinguished University Professor of Christian Ethics at Mercer University, Chair of Christian Social Ethics at Free University Amsterdam, Senior Research Fellow at International Baptist Theological Center also. Gushy is the elected past president of both the American Academy of Religion and Society of Christian Ethics, signaling his role as one of America's leading Christian ethicists. He is the author, co-author, editor, or co-editor of over 25 books and approximately 175 book chapters, journal articles, and reviews. His most recognized works include Righteous Gentiles of the Holocaust, Kingdom Ethics, and what we will be talking about today, Christian Ethics, Core Convictions for Christians Today. Over a 28-year career, he has been a devoted teacher, scholar, and activist on such issues as climate, torture, and LGBTQ inclusion. Dr. Gushy and his wife, Jeannie, live in Atlanta. You can connect with him and subscribe to his newsletter at davidpgushy.com or follow him at dpgushy.com on social media. So welcome to the show, Dr. Gushy. What else would you like our listeners to know about you? Well, thanks for having me, Lauren. Uh, well, I um, I live on a lake in Atlanta, and one of my happiest things to do is to look out the window. Um, I, uh, I was raised in Virginia, though I was born in uh, West Germany. Um, grew up Catholic, converted to Baptist when I was in high school, and now kind of a hybrid of both in some ways. Um, married, we have uh, three kids. I've been married 37 years, and I teach undergraduates and seminary students at Mercer University and have done here done that here for 15 years. Great. Well, West Germany, that seems appropriate. Hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about that here in a little bit. For sure, yeah. Cold War stuff, absolutely. Right, right. Uh, share, if you would, about your journey to faith and what that looked like in the past and what that looks like today. Yeah. Um, I was baptized as an infant in the Catholic Church. My mom was a devout uh, Catholic of Irish descent, so it was very, um, very important part of my childhood, though my dad uh, was not a churchgoer for uh, my childhood, so she was kind of on her own with us. Um, maybe that was one reason why uh, in my early teenage years, I kind of left the Catholic faith behind and just didn't, never really gave it a serious look again until my adulthood. Um, in high school, I met s- some people who were uh, Southern Baptists, including a girl that I-, I dated. And as a 16-year-old, I had a dramatic conversion experience, wandered into into that church on a Friday afternoon, and by Monday, I had... Uh, Converted a really powerful conversion experience, as I, it's always been kind of the 
the experiential foundation of my of my faith. I'll always remember that weekend. I'll always remember everything that happened. I committed to Jesus as my Savior and Lord, and I've been uh, pursuing that path ever since. I mean, two weeks after that, I was baptized. About a month after that, they asked me to be president of the youth group, which <laughs> wow. was a really bad idea. Um, six months after that, I was sure I was I was called to be a pastor, and I've been actually pursuing that calling ever since. Um, then when I got to seminary, I discovered I my intellectual interests were not going away, and I loved the discipline of Christian ethics. Uh, the way it was taught was really compelling to me. And so my sense of calling um, took one more turn to be a, a Christian ethicist. And so I've been pursuing that, you know, since the mid-1980s. So I'm a, a Christian pastor, ethicist, uh, and... And all of them, in a sense, are always at play every day of my life, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What are some spiritual practices that have been meaningful for you? Um, one of the things that, I, that that first church taught me was uh, to get up each day and read the Bible and pray. Um, and I still do that, just like they taught it. Though, one thing that has evolved is that I now read the Catholic daily mass readings instead of just kind of working my way through like a biblical book. So that's a pretty good example of of kind of my hybridity. Um, in the last few years, I've reconnected to my Catholic upbringing. My wife is Catholic. I go with her to Catholic church, and then I go uh, with my mother-in-law to Baptist church. And so I'm kind of both in some ways. Um, so anyway, I get up in the morning, I read scripture, uh, I journal and pray. Um, uh, I do. My wife and I published a prayer book um, uh, morning and evening prayer book, and I always uh, read the those prayers. It's a kind of a collection of prayers from the great history of the church, um, and so uh, that's a daily practice for me, morning and evening. And you know, um, you know, worship is really important to me. But it's pretty kind of bread and butter. But that daily rhythm of first thing in the morning over coffee, having scripture study and prayer, is the central spiritual practice of my life. It's interesting you talk about your your faith background in Catholic and Baptist uh, traditions. I'm thinking about, I recently interviewed Brian Zond, and he's talking about um, how in, in Protestant circles, traditionally we tend to avoid kind of these rote written prayers as if, and we only want spontaneous stuff. And, you know, I work in a, I'm currently working right now as a hospital chaplain and, and sometimes I lament not having pre-written prayers that I can just read to people like, like uh, when a priest comes in for a Catholic patient. Um, so it's interesting. Um, it's interesting. You've, you've seen both sides of that perhaps of the benefits of a spontaneous prayer and, and preformed prayer. Absolutely. And you know, this prayer book, um, was really uh, drawing from the entire history of the church, kind of uh, great morning and evening prayers, um, and it is um, it has really enriched my prayer life. I don't know um, if you think about most rituals and traditions; they have there's certain ways of saying things, you know, and and they have evolved over time because they're just so powerful, and um, and a lot of times I think what happens in spontaneous prayer traditions. Is that um, is that you, there ends up being a kind of a tradition that emerges anyway? 
I remember uh, the first that first Baptist church that I went to. Whenever it was time to pray the offering prayer, it was supposedly spontaneous. But those deacons almost always said it in almost exactly the same way every week. You know, I don't know. He, he, human beings um, are tradition-oriented people, and um, and if we're going to kind of repeat patterns, we might as well do it uh, as as richly and thoughtfully as possible. Anyway, for, in my life, they're kind of it's both, uh, and that's a really good symbol of the way my spirituality has evolved. It's kind of both and rather than either or. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is this is good. Thanks for engaging that with me. Um, so you've recently come out, or I guess it'll it'll have come out uh, as this interview releases. Your book is Christian Ethics, and um, before before I ask you even what led to the book or what inspired you to write the book, I'm just kind of curious if maybe you can engage me on this level. Like, it almost feels like, from my perspective at least, for the last four, five, six years in American Christianity, it's almost like ethics don't even matter. Uh, so maybe maybe to start out with, can you tell me like why why do ethics still even matter? Oh, that is such an interesting question, an interesting setup for a question, Lauren. Um, I think it's interesting that that you frame the question that way. It does feel that um, American Christianity has has had some shocking immorality and amorality. Uh, to some extent, this fixation on politics and anything goes in politics. And if you have a political figure that you like, doesn't really matter what their morality is, you know. Um, you know, you think about the headlines that Jerry Falwell Jr. made, you know, over the last couple of years and some of the lifestyle stuff that was revealed about him. I mean, his father would never have done anything like that, you know. I mean, so, I mean, Christian ethics has always mattered. Christian ethics is just simply the moral dimension of the Christian life. It's it's how we live. It's the rules that govern our behavior, the the principles that we think are most important, um, what the Bible teaches about how we are to behave in various dimensions of life. Um, there's a personal dimension and a social dimension, so it's about like what I do, but also what we do. It's about what the Church says to the society and to the world, as well as what we say to ourselves. Um, any human community of any duration develops moral standards and rules and goals, and the Church has 2,000 years of tradition of doing that. Um, and so, to, to in one level, Christian ethics is about studying what the Bible says about all of these issues. At another level, it's about examining what the Christian tradition has developed and said over 2,000 years. At another level, it's it's about prescribing how we should live and what we should teach, what we should say today. Um, one thing is for sure, uh, it has always been understood in historic Christianity that the Christian life has rigorous moral demands. It's not just about believing. It's not just about being saved. It's about living godly lives, lives in imitation of Christ. And so Christian ethics and seriousness about Christian ethics to me is fundamental to the Christian life. So I'm hearing a couple things I want to I want to follow up on if I can, even though we're a bit off script here already. But A, you talked about the personal and social dimensions of life. 
And then you talked about the the rich history of Christianity um, having a, a tradition of ethics and morality. Um, and maybe I'm being a bit too general and broad brush here, but I think from my perspective, at least one of the challenges we've seen over these past several years has come from evangelicalism per se, and which is a tradition that broadly speaking is a very personal focused faith lacking a social dimension. And then again, this is a bit broadly speaking here, lacks uh, an appreciation for church history. I think that American evangelicalism is is largely guilty of both of those accusations that you just made. Um, but even from the beginning of modern American evangelicalism, leaders like Carl Henry and Billy Graham and so on felt the need to weigh in on social issues, um, commented on all kinds of things, Cold War, race, government, economic policies, and so on. But in retrospect, I would say, by being cut off from the broader tradition of Christian reflection about a lot of those things, there, a lot of it was improv. Yeah. And the improv turns out to have largely been, you know, reflecting the social location of essentially conservative white men in America. So one of the things I, I try to teach consistently is there is, you might think of the Christian moral tradition as like a massive library of resources. Think of it as thousands of books. Just, uh, I mean, that's true. It is thousands of books, but that's also, it's also a metaphor. Um. So when we address an issue today and we're trying to figure out how we should live or what we should say, we don't have to make it up as we go along. There's usually some aspects of of that heritage that we can draw from. Even if we want to argue with the heritage, at least we need to know what it is. But if you're cut off from that heritage and you're highly individualist and you're kind of, it's just me in the Bible or the preacher in the Bible, a lot of preventable mistakes are made. Um, because the tradition does not provide any discipline or structure for how people think about things. Yeah. Just kind of make it up as they go along. Yeah. That also helps to account for, and I don't know your politics, but I'll just say it helps to account for how people can get swept into ideologies or charismatic political figures who, uh, say, like Donald Trump, have nothing to do with historic Christianity but can be embraced. And, and Christians can even redefine their beliefs and their values in keeping with the hot new charismatic political figure. That's precisely what the tradition of the church is supposed to help prevent. We're not supposed to be you know, kind of going with whatever the hot thing of the moment is. We have a tradition and scripture to discipline the way we live and how we think about things. Yeah, so if I'm hearing you right, then tr- Christian tradition, Christian ethics historically then can offer some guardrails, perhaps, towards going off you know, going off the cliff, right? Is that fair? It, it absolutely can. It absolutely can and should. Um, there's a way that that issues uh, have been talked about, um, and usually the way those issues have been framed is drawn from major themes or strands or issues in Scripture itself, right? So Scripture feeds tradition. Tradition builds on Scripture. Um, and you know, the it, the problem of kind of making it up as we go along is a problem 
not only on, you might say, the Trumpist right, but also on the left, um, where there's a lot of people who are pretty suspicious of tradition and scripture, and and they feel like um, it pretty much needs to be thrown out for people to be liberated or for justice to be done today, and that also is problematic. Um, all you know, the 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 tradition itself addresses these themes and can help us from going off the cliff either to the left or to the right. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. You know, one of the things that I've I've seen at least broadly speaking again in kind of evangelical church culture is this kind of like ends justifies the means approach, which what will we what's the word for that I'm looking for? What's that branch of ethics called? Utilitarianism or broadly speaking? Yeah, utilitarianism. Yeah, thank you. Right. Um, Uh And my spiritual director told me this, which was just, I thought, brilliant. And she said that when the the means become – when the ends justify the means, the means become the ends. So, for example, as I see it at least, like owning the libs has become the ends. Yes. Yeah. that can happen for anybody, anywhere, but the way I say it in my book is ethics is always going to be proposing goals or ends, right? And there are specific goals or ends that the tradition and the Scripture and Jesus himself put forward, like the kingdom of God, or loving our neighbors, or advancing justice, or keeping covenant. Um, certainly owning the libs is not anywhere in that tradition, right? You know, um, so, so you have these goals and in, in my book, Introducing Christian Ethics, I name six central goals like that. I think they are honoring the sacredness of life, advancing justice, uh, love, forgiveness, truth, and covenant. Um, and so then the means that one chooses to advance those goals, there are also boundaries there. Um, you can't advance justice just any old way. There are rules about these kinds of things, you know, um, how you speak and how you treat people and whether you kill people or, or whether you torture people or whatever, there are, there are rules on these things. And so I, I use an image of a highway in the book. I say, you might think of what direction are we driving? That's the goal, where we're we trying to go. But even whatever, however worthy is your goal, there are traffic laws that govern how you can drive in that direction, and those are the rules. And then you also have to look at the character of the driver. You know, um, Is the person sane and sober and capable of exercising that responsibility? And that's the character dimension. So goals, rules, and character all matter. And then finally, also consequences. Consequences are the results of our actions, right? Um, So a rightly thinking human being is setting good goals, is governing her or his behavior according to proper rules, is attending to how their character is doing, and is always aware of the consequences of their actions. Um, if, If you collapse everything into, man, I've got these goals and I'll do whatever I want, or whatever I need to achieve those goals, then you are collapsing morality into in, in some really dangerous ways. You know, it's interesting. Uh, primarily, I've been kind of banging on the right, and perhaps we've been banging on the right here in this conversation, but you mentioned that there's 
similar tendency can happen on the left that I'm thinking about something you said about the boundaries, uh, these or ethics serve as the boundaries to the means also. And I think that's one of the things I've been struggling with when I see folks on the, the left kind of justifying being a jerk for the sake of advancing the cause. Um, I grew up, I grew up very fundamentalist and I just really get knots in my stomach when I see anything that smacks of fundamentalism. Um, so maybe this is just me talking, but I'm curious, like how can good ethics be implemented? Of course we want to see them on the right, but I, I want to see them on the left too. And I think they are important. Um, fundamentalism in that sense could be described as um, um, doctrinaire, hyper-rigid, and very angry. Okay, let's say that's how we define fundamentalism. Does that ring a bell, right? <laughs> yes. Um, uh, any ideology or religion can become doctrinaire, very rigid, and very angry. That can be left or right, right? Um, where I where I think of, um, you know, you talked about like being jerks. Um, there are these multiple teachings in the New Testament about the character qualities of Christians. Uh, one of the ones I was asked to memorize or required to memorize was the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, right? Uh you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, etc. Um, Christians are taught consistently that who we are in our kind of daily expression of our character matters a lot. So you're not allowed to be an aggressive jerk because that's just not in keeping with the character qualities of of Jesus and how Jesus instructs us to live. Pursuing some kind of ideology or political goal or even moral goal, sure, I'm sure there's plenty of those things that we want to pursue, but how we do it and who we are is always relevant in Christian ethics. Yeah. I want to hear more, if I can, about um, how the kingdom of God can be a basis for Christian ethics. Um, For a couple of decades, uh, my work has been identified with uh, with the, the term kingdom ethics. And in fact, I have a, a book, co-authored book under that name. Um, and then I revisit that theme in this new book. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very clear about this. And uh, in both Matthew and Mark, it's the summary statement of his first preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So, now, different scholars have had different ideas about what that even meant for Jesus and where the idea came from, but I think it's pretty clear that Jesus was saying, I have come to reclaim the world. This world belongs to God, um, and uh, Jesus has been sent to reclaim the world for God. And and so, so I would argue and have long argued that the teachings that Jesus offers— are toward the end of advancing the kingdom of God. Jesus is calling a community into being who will not just believe in him, but who will live in the kingdom way, the way that builds God's reign. Um, so 
this provides moral content into the very essence of the Christian life. God is looking not just for believers, but for kingdom people. Um, and the kingdom has certain dimensions to it, and, and I'm pretty convinced from close study that it includes things like um, justice and peace and love. Um, it includes uh, true community and healing and forgiveness and so on. Um, and so, so I, I would argue that a lot of the central ethical norms of the Christian faith make the most sense if they're understood to be part of the kingdom that God is building through Jesus. And the church is that community that joyfully jumps on board and says, we want to be a part of that project. We want to be a part of advancing the reign of God. And so that's how ethics relates to the kingdom of God proclamation. So obviously within the broad Christian ethic or the kingdom ethic are many issues topics in our world today that are full of disagreement, perhaps. Um, I think of, you know, the ethic of creation care versus perhaps the, the quote unquote ethic as a Milton Friedman, Friedman might say of profits being a social good in and of themselves. How do you a promote an ethic of creation care while perhaps if you would frame it this way of, you know, saying making money does not need to be the highest end. Um, the tradition has a lot to say about this, by the way. Uh, um, and so what I would say is that the goal of economic life is properly understood to meet everybody's needs. It's to be sure that all human beings have the opportunity to to have a dignified and decent life and to have their their needs met and an opportunity even to go beyond basic needs um, through hard work and so on but what we uh, our understanding is that is that in a planet with seven and a half or eight billion people and in a context of industrialization the spread of the human population all over the world, that economic well-being and ecological well-being are intertwined, that you cannot just do anything in technology and economic life without paying attention to the, the resiliency and the, and the well-being of the creation as a whole. So you might think of um, the environment as the context God's creation, better put, as the context within which within which all human enterprises are situated. So if any human enterprise erodes in a significant way the well-being of the creation, in the end it's not sustainable, right? Uh, um, so, so what we're seeing is the big basket within which all human issues need to be considered one of them at least, is the well-being of the creation as a whole. And the, the evidence is, for the last 300 years, human economic activity did not factor adequately uh, on, uh, did not factor in the, the limits of the resiliency of creation itself. So we've done damage to the context that we depend upon to live, right? 
So, so if you have energy sources that pollute the air or, or, or water or land and you poison yourself and your children, then that's not sustainable. You have to find some other way to get energy, right? Um, yeah. Or if you're pumping enough carbon dioxide to warm the, warm the um, atmosphere and you're not, not able to cope with the consequences of that, that's not sustainable either. In a theological perspective, we, we're reminded that this is God's world. This is God's creation. Human beings have mo- the most power of any species on creation, but that power should be used responsibly um, for the long-term well-being of all the creatures on the planet, and that includes ourselves. It's definitely true that the issue of creation and creation care has risen in, in my field to be probably the number one issue, because if we do not take care of the very context of our existence— then that existence itself is seriously threatened in the long term. And again, I, I keep thinking back to your original point that, you know, there's a tradition that has teachings on caring for God's creation, uh, yet it's in some circles been largely ignored, correct? That's right. Um, now, that tradition, honestly, when you that specific dimension of the tradition was fairly thin. I mean, there were people, a great example is Francis of Assisi, who who had a reverence for creation and a sense of kinship with creation that is now constantly being discussed and drawn upon. Um, and in fact, I think it's one reason why the current Pope chose the name Francis, uh, was to connect with Francis of Assisi. Um, but there are dimensions of Christian theology, of classic Christian theology, that have not been very helpful for the creation. Like, like the vast majority of the churches have preached a very human-centered message. The whole theological story is human beings are sinners, and God has acted to save human beings in Christ's death on the cross, right? And the whole drama is a human drama. Um, but, but this human drama, we missed how much the human drama utterly depends on the drama of how the whole creation of the of the you know, how the whole creation is doing, um, and and so more. There's theology being reframed in the last seventy five years to talk about a cosmic drama, a global drama, a creation drama, not just a human drama, right? So that's an example where where the the tradition, the old tradition, had some resources. Now, maybe not quite enough. Some parts of the tradition that have been strongest on creation are, for example, the Eastern Orthodox tradition. And most Protestants don't know anything about the Eastern Orthodox tradition, so that's a problem. And then the Catholic social teaching tradition has been pretty good on the environment, I'd say, for about 40 years, but most Protestants don't attend to that either. Um, And so, so here we've had some weaknesses in the tradition, and it's not a coincidence that Conservative evangelicals are among the least interested in caring for the creation and the most resistant to broadening um, their thinking in order to account for the world that we actually live in. Yeah. Well, I want to shift gears here just a titch. Um, As we're recording this, um, I think President Biden has just nominated uh, someone for Supreme Court. Obviously, that's shaped— um, by the last, what, the Trump presidency and the nomination of several, um, how many, how many did he get? Three people, right? Is that three, is three people? Three. Mm-hmm. 
And so I think the question I think many have asked, I remember 20 years ago, gosh, 25 years ago, when I was you know a young freshman in Bible college, and it was during the the run up to the Bush presidency about the the enthusiasm, the the vigor about getting people on the Supreme Court, about you know that being where the Holy Grail is, getting people on the Supreme Court, and obviously to a large extent, you know they've gotten what they wanted. So I think the question, as we look back and continue to look back over perhaps the evangelical movement, the way so many people have been disenfranchised and disgruntled with church and American Christianity, I mean, has has it been worth it? Do you think there'll be a, a reckoning? A um, couple thoughts from that question. One is that it reveals a lot of the fractures and tensions in our country that so much would depend on nine judges. I am quite sure that the founders had no plan that, like, every Supreme Court nomination would be the biggest political event of the year. There's there's way too much pressure on those nine people. Um, and I think in our, you know, three-part branch, three branches, you know, executive, legislative, judicial I think it partly reveals weakness on the legislative side that everything seems to get kicked over to the Supreme Court. And um, and so they end up becoming like the, the, the grand judges of oftentimes a lot of moral issues, not just legal ones. So that's putting too much pressure on the court. It's also what I hear in your question is conservative evangelicals d- decided that if they were going to get the changes that they wanted in American law that had to do with morality, things like abortion, uh, that they were going to have to go through the Supreme Court. And and that became a very visible strategy, and it came to dominate what a lot of churches sounded like on Sunday morning, get a Republican elected so you can get conservative judges so that we can get America back again, right? And what's what's interesting is that that Supreme Court strategy right now is looking pretty successful in terms of their numbers, right? And um, But it also has has turned off a lot of post-evangelicals or ex-evangelicals who said, no, when did the gospel become getting Supreme Court justices confirmed? Did Jesus deal with that? Is that anywhere in Matthew? You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good example of the hyper-politicizing of a lot of churches. And Who's that going to drive away? It's going to drive away anybody who doesn't have that politics, who doesn't believe that vision, and it's going to drive away anybody who thinks that the church is about something other than American politics, right? Um, so, so I think that the Supreme Court, the all the hyper focus on the Supreme Court reveals problems both in our churches and in our government right now, hmm. for sure. That's interesting. Yeah. Well. So we're kind of doing this backwards today, but you've you've put all this into a book. Talk about the book, uh, you know, what brought it, how churches and leaders and individuals can use it in their own contexts. Great. Yeah, the book is called Introducing Christian Ethics, Core Convictions for Christians Today. It's a, it's a pretty big book. I'm looking at the pages, 340 pages. Um, 25 chapters covering, you know, scripture, tradition, method, 
themes and about 15 key issues in ethics. One unique feature is that um, it's simultaneously being released in audio, video, ebook, and print book. So, so like uh, you go to a chapter and you can scan a barcode and you can go right to a video lecture if you want to if you want to watch it, um, watch it on your phone, say, uh, or you can use it in churches, um, whatever works best for people. Listen in the car or watch a video or whatever. Um, uh, the book began. Um, I I was concluding my uh, uh, appointment of teaching full-time at McAfee School of Theology here in Atlanta, so I, I was going to be teaching the ethics intro class one last time, and I thought, well, I could use the old notes or I could write some new lectures to say, hey, here's what I really think here at near the end of my career with you all. So I decided to write all new lectures. So it's a revisiting of stuff that I've worked on for 30 years, but all new lectures, all fresh content, uh, in which I, I kind of take a shot at what Christian ethics is um, comprehensively. And so the the endorsements are looking real strong. I think maybe it, the book might be pretty good. I hope, <laughs> hope, you'll, hope people will give it a look. Well, that's great. Uh, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Dr. David Gushy. And uh, I tell folks you can take these closing questions as seriously or not as you'd like to. Um, being that you have a background in the Catholic Church, I'm curious uh, your response here. If you're a pope for a day, what might that day look like for you? Um, a lot of prayer. One of the things the popes do is um, th- these good recent popes have had a lot of prayerful concern for the whole world. Uh, um hang out in the Vatican, look at some of the great art, um, go out and meet some people in a cafe and, and talk about life. Uh, I, try to, I try to be as normal and accessible as possible. Um, read, preach a sermon, um, think deep thoughts, and, um, and try to provide good moral and spiritual leadership for whoever was willing to listen. Yeah, it's a good full day right there. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life? I'm really intrigued by two people. I'm intrigued by John Wesley um, because I think his his combination of convictions and and um, vision. I don't know. I'd like to. I'd like to have gotten to know him. I'm also interested in Erasmus. The a Renaissance, early Reformation era Catholic humanist who who tried to to help people not kill each other and to find a way forward during the the Reformation and the split between Lutheranism and Catholicism. Uh, I, I mention Erasmus in one of my books uh, after Evangelicalism as a model for me of a humane, uh, godly follower of Christ, brilliant scholar who who tried to help people to solve theological differences peacefully. So give me Erasmus and Wesley. That'd be a good conversation for sure. Uh, what do you think and what do you think history will remember from our current time and place and for our listeners as we're, as we're listening to this, we're dealing, you know, with the tail end of COVID, hopefully tail end. We've said that before. And Russia's just started invading Ukraine uh, to give some historical timely context to where we're at. So what do you think 
my students, I told them uh, yesterday in class, you guys are living through some very full history. You know, these kids are 20 years old, and the last six years, they've seen a lot. Um, so you know what I would say, if you're, especially from American perspective, the election of the most unlikely and I think most destructive president ever, my humble opinion, the January 6th near coup, COVID for two years that has killed about 6 million people, including a million Americans just about at this time, um, and all the the weirdness of lockdowns and, and uh, the way everything's been disrupted. Um, and now I think some of the, the norms of post-World War II life are being shattered. Um, the rise of autocracy and one-man rule in China and in Russia, and both of those countries are showing a, a, a rather hefty appetite for their neighbors. Um, so, so we, so we may be seeing the collapse of the post Cold War world and something more scary. Uh, how about, you know, and you know what some would say? Possibly the decline of America and the decline of American democracy is contributing to those trends because we're not strong enough to prevent those things from happening. We're too confused and torn internally to be of that much use on the world stage. I hope that's not true, but I worry about it. Yeah. Boy, so optimistic there. Um, but <laughs> gosh, I've, glad to be of help, man. <laughs> I understand. Uh, how about this then? How about this? Uh, what are your hopes for the future of Christianity? Um, here's something I'm very hopeful about. In um, North America, and especially the U.S., the racialized Christianity has lost its credibility. And so the, the, the whiteness of white Christianity, especially white evangelical Christianity, has been painfully apparent. And so there's, there's a renewal in Christian circles where that whiteness, in that sense, is being sloughed off, and people are reading and engaging and having com- community across racial boundaries in some really rich ways. Um, so I'm not hopeful about white evangelicalism. I am hopeful about what's being born in its wake. Post, we might call it post-whiteness dominated Christianity. And, um, and people are realizing that, I mean, white people are realizing we cannot just read the old white theologians. Um, we, we need to be in community with intellectually and spiritually, um, people who have been under the thumb of white supremacism for centuries. And so I'm hopeful about about new things being born in the post-evangelical and post-white Christianity space. Yeah. Well, that's optimistic for sure. Um, where can people find out more about you and perhaps get a copy of the book? Yeah. Um, I am at davidpgushy.com. It's a very active and actively maintained website. Um, you can, uh, sign up for a a monthly email blast that goes out Uh, there info at davidpgushy.com, but just go to davidpgushy.com and then all my books are listed there, including the new one, Introducing Christian Ethics. Great. Well, again, the title is Introducing Christian Ethics, Core Convictions for Christians Today. 
should be out, will be out by the time this podcast airs. So I encourage folks to to check it out. And I'm I'm really excited to hear about all the different ways people can interact with the content. Uh, what a really forward thinking way, podcast, video, uh, audio, that kind of thing. Really great thinking there. Thank you so much, Lauren. We're really excited about it. Front Edge Publisher is the publisher, and they they. You know, they've actually kept the price very reasonable for a book that you can access in so many different ways. Yeah. Um, so I hope people will give it a look. Absolutely. Well, David, thank you so much for your time. May God's peace be with you. Thank you. You too as well. Thanks for having me on your program. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go. Do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Peace.